If you would, take out your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13. Our normal practice in this church is to work verse by verse through books of the Bible, and we've been doing this with Hebrews now for uh, just over a year. That means as we come to Hebrews 13, we're in the home stretch. And in this case, the home stretch is a series of rapid-fire exhortations to these struggling believers, reinforcing everything that the first 12 chapters were teaching and urging them to persevere in the faith. This morning, we're going to look at at about 12 verses, but really we're just going to focus on the bookends, the beginning and the end of it, and next week, Lord willing, we'll look at the middle. What you'll see from this passage, the beginning and the end of this passage, is that they both deal with leadership in the church and what our attitude, what our disposition ought to be towards church leadership. Now, before I read God's word, let's seek his blessing. King Jesus, we do long to crown you with many crowns. You are worthy. We want to see you subdue all nations to yourself. But we confess that as we come to your word, we need to ask you to subdue our hearts to yourself. Sometimes we, we don't like the challenges of Scripture. Sometimes our flesh can bristle at them and make excuses. Humble us, Lord, that we may hear you as our king and receive your word as your glad and joyful subjects. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Look with me, Hebrews chapter 13, starting at verse 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Don't be led astray, led away by diverse and strange teachings, For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. When I was in seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina, I did pulpit supply for a very small but very precious church in the community of Mintern, South Carolina. They say Mintern, but it's spelled Mintern. 
And I'm guessing that in this room, no more than a handful of people have ever even heard of Minern, much less ever been there. But I would preach there once a month, and it was about a two and a half hour drive from Charlotte uh, to Minern, which meant we'd have to leave pretty early to get there in time for worship. And I can remember one particular trip, it, it was still fairly dark and it was foggy, which meant the road ahead of me was barely visible. What do you do in those moments where you can't see what's ahead of you? Well, you look for a set of taillights to follow. You look for a leader, and you follow that leader. You follow those taillights when the road ahead of you isn't visible. The church of these Hebrews, to whom this book is directed, they were a people who could not see the road ahead of them. The road looked treacherous to them. There was danger on both sides. On the one side, there was the danger of temptation and apostasy. On the other side, there was the danger of persecution. And it was hard to know what was ahead of them. And so what counsel is this pastor giving to this dear congregation who cannot see the way? He says, when you cannot see the way, look for the taillights. Look to the leaders ahead of you. Consider how bravely they, by the help of the Holy Spirit, withstood temptation and persecution as they ran with perseverance the race marked out for them. You remember, that's the goal of Hebrews. It's not simply to call them to run the race or to begin the race, but to finish the race well. And so for these weary saints receiving this letter, that's a good word. Follow your leaders. And as some of them, they were growing weary of persecution. They were growing weary of being outsiders. They're thinking of turning away from Christ. He's saying to them, don't forget the example and the model of those who preached the word to you, who shepherded you, and in some cases even died for the sake of the gospel. Remember them. Follow those taillights. You know, that's a good word for us as well. Consider those who have gone before us, who, who lived lives of godliness, who faithfully proclaimed and taught the word, who had a strong backbone to hold their own in the day of conflict. Those are the taillights. Those are the lives you and I are called to imitate in those moments where the road ahead becomes hard to see. Now, before I get into the study of this text, I want to speak for a moment about church leadership. I think sometimes we can look at church leadership sort of as, as a necessary evil. That we have to have church leadership because somebody's got to make sure the bills are paid. Somebody's got to make sure that, that the decisions are made. Somebody's got to take the blame when things get bad. But God's purposes in raising up leaders are far more than merely politics. Church government is actually a critical part of Christian discipleship. Like civil government, if you've read Romans 13, you know that civil government is intended, when it functions well, for the flourishing of people. Well-functioning church leadership helps the people of God to run well and finish the Christian life well. Conversely, denominations and churches that have grown unfaithful, that have fallen away, they have done so ultimately because of poor leadership. 
And so rather than thinking of church government and Christian leadership as a necessary evil or a matter of indifference, I think the scriptures teach that it is one of the ways by which God graciously disciples and shepherds his flock. Godly leadership is the means through which Christ grows, blesses, protects, and preserves his church. And so we should thank Christ for that, that he shepherds the flock. Just as we saw in Isaiah 40 in our Old Testament reading, he shepherds the flock by raising up godly leadership. And by focusing on these bookends, verse 7 and then verse 17, we're going to see a few things that speak to us about church leadership and our disposition towards it. First, in verse 7, we see leaders must be faithful to the Scriptures. Second, also in verse 7, leaders must live a life worth following, a life worth imitating. Third, in verse 17, we are called to follow our leaders, to obey and submit to our leaders. And then fourth, in verse 18, we must pray for our leaders. Now, if you look carefully at those, you see the first two pertain to the kind of leaders we need, and then the second two pertain to our disposition towards our leaders. So first, leaders must be faithful to the Scriptures. Look at verse 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the Word of God. Many different types of leaders in our lives. In fact, all of us in various degrees are, are leaders. There's always somebody watching us, whether it's in the home, the workplace, the classroom. We have some role of leadership, but God is, is through the word here speaking specifically of leadership within the church. And he's showing his cards here. God is showing what he values in church leadership. And I think this is so important. I want to plead with you to pay careful attention because many of you have told me that you came from churches where what was valued in church leadership was somebody who was socially upstanding, financially wealthy, and they were successful. And people were often elected to leadership on those grounds. And in hindsight, you can see that many of them were ill-equipped to lead the church. And the whole church pays the price for that. And so God's showing us here what kind of leaders we should follow. Those who spoke the word of God to you. That is the preeminent mark of a Christian leader that they are overflowing with the scriptures. The godly leader is one whose ministry is not grounded in the futility of worldly techniques and strategies and worldly success but upon the power of the Word of God. A church leader, a godly church leader, is one who, by life and by word, speak the Scriptures to you. I want to talk specifically about the preaching of the Word for a moment. In the Christian church, God has seen fit to use weak vessels to proclaim his eternal, powerful truths. And so in the Christian church, God commissions preachers to declare, to explain, and to apply the word of God to the people of God. Now, the New Testament uses a Greek word, kariso, for preaching. And it really is the word for a herald. A herald's job 
was to proclaim a king's message. The king would give the herald the message, and they didn't have radio, they didn't have the internet, and so the king would give the herald his message, and the herald was to go to every end of the kingdom and tell the king's message. And the herald's job, his life hinged upon this duty to proclaim the king's message just as the king gave it to him. He did not have the right to change, to alter one iota of it. Unlike the orators of the day who used uh, fanciful language and theatrics to tell the people what they wanted to hear, the preacher was only permitted to proclaim the king's message. And it is the message itself, not the herald, that gives the herald authority. So the herald doesn't aim to impress people with his eloquence. He aims to awe people with the glory of the king. He doesn't call people to submit to the rules he makes up or give them his opinion on matters. He calls people to submit to the rule of the king. The faithful herald doesn't rely on the latest studies about what the culture is saying about any topic. The faithful herald proclaims the timeless word of the king, which like the king himself, the word will, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And no matter what it may cost him, the herald must proclaim that message, even if the world doesn't want to hear it. That's what it means to speak the the word. The faithful herald views humanity through God's lens. Everyone on the face of the earth is either being saved or is perishing in their sins. And in light of that, God's heralds must first warn of man's spiritual danger. Tell the world how sin has spiritually ruined us and of the hell that awaits. And then the herald brings the good news, the unimaginably good news, that the king himself has borne our sins. That though our sins are as scarlet, he took them on himself and he will wash us white as wool. News that though you have gone astray, the good shepherd beckons you back to himself and he delights in forgiving sins. And then the herald must say, so repent and believe the gospel. The herald has that one message, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the message is simple, repent and believe. Now look with me at Ephesians 2 for a moment. Now that we know what a herald is, I want you to see how closely King Jesus attends the ministry of the Word. As far as we know, the Lord Jesus Christ in his incarnate body never set foot in Ephesus. But look at Ephesians chapter 2 verse 17. Paul, speaking of Christ, says to the Ephesians, He came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Now, the Lord Jesus incarnate didn't go to Ephesus as far as we know, but it was through his ministers, his heralds, that he inhabited their message. He is so bound up with the word that when his word is preached, the authority of the king is bound to it. Do you understand that? When gospel ministers preach the word, it is Christ himself who speaks And when the word is proclaimed, Christ is ruling his church. 
Man, what a privilege it is that you and I are so loved by King Jesus that he ensures day after day, week after week, we have the king's message. We have the king's word. Imagine a king who never communicated with his people. That's not our situation at all. Our Lord speaks to us. You know, that's what happens every Lord's day, that King Jesus comes and he preaches through very flawed, sinful men. He proclaims his perfect will to his people. He speaks to his beloved subjects by his anonymous representatives who've been entrusted with the gospel. God is not silent. We hear in the preaching of the word the king of heaven, and we are blessed. This is the means by which Jesus grows us spiritually. As we faithfully and humbly listen Lord's Day after Lord's Day to the ministry of the Word, that's why we do morning and evening worship here at First Scots, because if hearing Jesus on the Lord's Day morning is good, then it must be doubly good to hear Him morning and evening. And, and He grows us all the more through it. And so when verse 7 says, remember those who spoke, to the, the, spoke the word to you, God is saying, do not forget the message that I proclaim to you through my weak servants. In the 16th century, there was a Protestant reformer in England by the name of Hugh Latimer. He was known as one of the great preachers of his day, and so that gave him many opportunities to speak to great audiences, to large crowds. And one day he found that he was going to be preaching to King Henry VIII of England. And he thought about this great responsibility to bring a message before the king. He realized that the message God had laid upon his heart through the scriptures was not the message King Henry was going to want to hear. And as he began preparing his sermon, he thought to himself, do you remember that you are speaking to the high and mighty King Henry VIII who has the power to command you to be sent to prison or who can have your head cut off if it pleases him? Uh, will you not take care to be sure that your, ear, your words do not offend his royal ears? And then he thought to himself, Latimer, Latimer, do you not remember that you are speaking before the King of kings and the Lord of lords, before him, at whose throne even Henry VIII will stand, before him to one day you will give account. Be faithful to your master no matter who is listening and declare what your king has spoken to them. Later, oh, excuse me, Latimer faced the choice. Would he proclaim what man wanted him to hear or what God had commanded him to say. He took his stand for the truth and preached boldly, and eventually he was martyred by Henry's daughter, Queen Mary. We desperately need Latimer's today, especially as the culture becomes increasingly antagonistic to the gospel. We need models of holy men who preach the whole gospel with backbone, with courage, knowing that for them to live is Christ and to die is gain, and that upon death they would reign with Jesus in glory forever and ever. So remember those who spoke the word to you. The ministry of the word is essential to Christian leadership. 
And yet, Christian leadership is not merely about the words we speak. It's also about the life that leaders live. Look at the latter part of verse 7. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. This is the second thing here. Leaders must have a life worth following, a life worth imitating. It's one of the things Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for. You know, they they had righteous speech in many ways, but they didn't live righteously. For them, ministry was a means to power and wealth. And Jesus says, you must not be like them. You must not be like the leaders of the Gentiles and who lord it over them. Your life must be unique if you are called to Christian leadership. The life of the Christian leader should be a reflection of the Lord Jesus himself who laid down his life for the sheep. This is one of the frequent encouragements or commandments of the New Testament. Listen to 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. The Apostle Paul says, be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. We saw a similar exhortation back in Hebrews chapter 6, where the author of Hebrews says, be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. You see, this the question of fitness for Christian leadership it is not so much about whether somebody knows everything about, about running a business or, or everything about the, 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 the tools of leadership. It's a question of love for others, personal piety, and devotion to Christ that make a leader's life worth imitating. Look with me at 1 Timothy 3 for a moment, would you? First Timothy 3, this is one of two primary passages alongside Timothy, uh, Titus 1. First uh, Timothy 3 is one of the essential passages about church leaders. And as I read just the first, uh, just verses 2 through 7, I want you to pay attention to how many of these things have to do with marketable skills. That's often what we look for in leaders. Do they have lots of talents? And how many of them have to do with character and integrity? First Timothy 3, starting at verse 2. Therefore, an overseer. And by the way, the word overseer is interchangeable with elder. An overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not gentle, uh, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone doesn't know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be thought well of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. How much of this is about marketable skills? That's what we look for from a worldly perspective credentials. What does God look for in leaders? A life worth it, imitating. A life of integrity. God is saying, I'm not that concerned with whether a man is a socialite or has superior oratory skills or if he's been the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. What matters to me in terms of leadership, God is saying is, is this man a living picture of my son? 
that is the desire of God, that the world would be filled with men and women who are being renewed in the image of Jesus Christ. And so that must be especially true of leaders in the church. Now that's a high standard, isn't it? God says exactly, exactly. The church is the bride of Christ. Men, how many of you would entrust your wife to a man with scandalous character, to a man with a poor reputation, to a man whom you don't trust. You wouldn't do it. Nor does Jesus Christ entrust his bride, the church, to those who lack personal piety and integrity. Christ entrusts his bride to men who live by faith, He says, those who love me will keep my commandments. And that will show forth in a life worth imitating. Now, I said a moment ago, Christian leaders must be a reflection of Jesus Christ. And I want to add to that, in all ways except one. Christian leaders, one thing that sets Christian leaders apart from Jesus himself is Jesus Christ never sinned and therefore never had need to repent. But Christian leaders must be marked by humble repentance. Our Lord never repented of personal sin because he never committed personal sin, but our leaders do. And so leaders must be men who return day after day to the gospel for forgiveness. You know, here's what's wonderful about that. As a man frequently runs to Jesus Christ for grace, it sweetens him. The gospel sweetens him. And those who have received firsthand the grace of Christ, what happens is the old, harsh exterior melts away. And those who have received the most grace begin to be, are are those who are quickest to extend grace to others. You remember James and John in the gospel, the two brothers, Jesus called them the sons of thunder. It's a cool nickname, but it's not a a really happy nickname. It really means loud mouths. They're traveling with Jesus. They go to a Samaritan village. The Samaritans reject Jesus, and James and John say, you know, Jesus, we got an idea. You know what we should do? You're sovereign. Why don't you cast down a little bit of thunder on those guys? Just smite them. Just burn them up. That would be great, wouldn't it? But you know, it's fascinating. We come to the end of John's life. We read it in the epistles. After 40, 50 years of walking with Jesus, of being sweetened by the gospel through faith and repentance. And when we meet John in the epistles, he is so full of love. In fact, how does he address his congregations in his epistles? My dear children. Isn't it amazing how the gospel sweetens Christian leaders? You know, this is an area in which so many churches have done such great disservice to themselves and to the kingdom. Selecting leaders, elders and deacons, who do not live as reflections of Jesus Christ. But they're so good at budgets. But people like them. You know, they're moderate in their Christianity. They're not too extreme. That's what we want. That's not what the church needs. Do you know what the church needs? 
You know what you need personally? You need men in whom it is evident that they have been with Jesus Christ and that their life is such a reflection of his life that when you imitate them, you are imitating Jesus Christ. That's why he says here in verse 7, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Now, commentators suggest, and I think this is probably right, this is speaking of leaders who had gone to be with the Lord probably as martyrs. We saw that back in chapter 10, that, that some have gone to prison, others, it seems, their lives have been cut short, humanly speaking, for the sake of the gospel. The thought of martyrdom is really scary. I say that as, as, as an elder in the church. You know, leaders, we have to accept that, that even in America, it may be very costly to proclaim the gospel. It's a very sobering word. But this text, if we go down to verse 17, I want you to see an even more sobering thought. Look at 17. Speaking of leaders, they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. In the New Testament, the word for elder and the word overseer, as I said, is interchangeable. And so when it says in verse 17, they're keeping watch, it's saying they are overseers of you. That's what leaders do. They don't sit around a boardroom and make decisions that do not affect them. And they don't sit there and talk about how to spend money all day. The chief call of leaders is to oversee, to watch over the flock, because one day, leaders are going to stand before God and give an answer to him for how they shepherded the flock, how they shepherded those whom God entrusted to them. Yes, martyrdom is scary, preaching the word faithfully. When I think about what that may look like in 20 or 30 years, that is scary. But it is terrifying to think of standing before God and giving account for those whom he entrusted to me and to our elders to shepherd and confessing to God that we did not hold fast to the gospel. We did not protect the flock. That is terrifying. I can tell you firsthand, the elders of this church, we take our, our duties seriously in part because we love you and we want to see you flourish in Christ but because we also know that one day Pastor Walton and I and the elders of this church will give an account because leaders are accountable to God for every member that he entrusts to them. Well, this leads us to the third point from our passage. We see it in verse 17. We must follow our leaders. Look at 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. In God's wisdom, the way he has created the world is that he has established institutions and he has entrusted certain people within those institutions with his authority. So in the family, the father is entrusted with the authority of leadership. In government, he entrusts leadership to the civil magistrate. And in the church, God entrusts authority to the elders. 
for the spiritual flourishing of the whole church. That's why verse 17 says, you should make it a joy to them. Shepherding you should be a joy, otherwise that's of no benefit to you. But I wonder if we're all really honest. When we read those words, obey your leaders and submit to them, do we sort of bristle a little bit? You know, we're a country that was born out of rebellion, and we've been pretty good at it since then. We do not like when, when others tell us what to do. Eve in the garden did not like being told what she could and could not do. And ever since, obedience and submission to anyone other than our own hearts are a very difficult task. I'm really thankful the Lord Jesus was not that way. He didn't resist the authority of his heavenly Father. In fact, he says, my, my will my meat, my food is to do the will of my Father in heaven. He said, I do always do those things that please him. But that's not necessarily true of us, is it? Sometimes, even as believers, we're really good at coming up with reasons not to obey the word of God, aren't we? If we're really honest, uh, we would really rather Jesus be a consultant than a king, wouldn't we? He gives us suggestions, and we can keep them if we want to. And we're often very slow to trust God and follow God by following those whom he has set over us in leadership. You know, we can even do that in theologically astute-sounding ways. Obey? That sounds like legalism, doesn't it? I'm under grace. I'm not justified by works of the law. God says exactly and if you have been justified by grace through faith, then keep my commandments. Here, follow your leaders. It's no coincidence, though, the Bible calls us sheep. Because sheep are naturally slow to listen to their shepherds. And it's always to their own detriment. Sheep, if they wish to enter green pastures and come beside still waters, must follow the shepherd. As believers, it should be our aim not only to follow Christ, but to imitate and obey those that he has placed over us as they follow and imitate Christ. Now, lest anybody think that I am talking about mindless, cult-like following, where you never question your leadership, that's clearly not what this is talking about. This is saying, insofar as your leaders are teaching, expounding, applying, and enforcing the word, you are obligated to obey and submit to them. This is not blind submission to your leaders. This is submission to Christ as he makes his will known through leadership. I know church membership is not very popular today. Many professing Christians eschew the idea, and they'll say something like this. You know, there's no clear verse in Scripture saying that we have to be church members. Well, not only do we have great historical data that going all the way back to the second century, church membership was a normal practice. And by the way, if you think our inquirer's class is long being about eight weeks long, the church membership process was at least a year in the early church. But this passage teaches us that even in the time of the Hebrews, church membership was normative. 
Verse 17 again. They will give account to God. Yes, the elders will give account, but the question is for whom? Are we going to give account to God for all of Buford? No, you'll give account for those whom God has called under your care through church membership. And unless the elders are in a defined relationship with a specific group of Christians, how else could they oversee them, much less give account for them? In other words, without church membership, he, Hebrews thirteen seventeen is an impossible task. We're called to obey and submit to leaders. When the leaders of the church are preaching according to the word of God, when they're exhorting according to the word of God, when they're admonishing and correcting and disciplining according to the word of God, then church members are spiritually obliged to obey. And to refuse obedience and submission is not an offense against your elders, but to God himself who raised them up for your blessing. Do you realize that? That the design of church leadership is for your spiritual flourishing. In other words, it's a sign of Jesus' great love for you. When leaders faithfully proclaim and model the word of God for the people of God and the people obey, then the blessing of God comes upon the people. As leaders lovingly disciple, direct, and discipline the flock according to the word, the blessing of God pours out upon the people of God. This means at times the leadership of the church may have to come to you and challenge you in some aspect of your life. Maybe it's, it's non-attendance to church. Maybe it's a husband in the way he speaks to his wife. It could be any number of things. But God at times will send the leaders of the church to individuals calling upon them to repent. Is, is that because they're being pious and superior, holier than thou? No, it is because God loves you. And in his great love for you, when our hearts are prone to wander, he uses others to draw us back to himself. Verse 17, the end there says, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Isn't that interesting? He says, you're to aim for your leader's to take great joy in shepherding you. He wants you to be conscious of that. This month, for me, is 10 years here. I got here just after the church started, a couple months after, and so our 10th anniversary was a couple of months ago, but my 10th anniversary was, was a couple of weeks ago. And it brings me great joy to think about that because the average pastorate in America is about four years means I've been here at this point two and a half times the average. And obviously, God's sovereignty is the chief reason that these 10 years have been a great joy. But humanly speaking, one of the reasons that these 10 years have been a great joy is because you do exactly what Hebrews 13, 17 says. You make it a joy to be your pastor. And for that, I am deeply grateful. Humanly speaking, I can say there are men and women in this room who you're the reason I'm still here after 10 years. So that's either to your credit or to your blame. I'm not sure. But I have deep gratitude to God for men and women who make it a joy to shepherd. 
Gospel ministry has joys unlike anything else in this world. When you proclaim the gospel and you see someone who was once lost as could be, miraculously transformed and changed by the grace of God, there is nothing like it. When you see someone, this has been one of the greatest joys of of pastoring this church, is men and women who are older and, and by their own admission were in churches that did not preach the gospel and they come to saving faith at age 60, 70, 80. And their lives are radically transformed so that at, at 80 years old, they're just beginning to walk with Christ with this rich, humble zeal. There is nothing like it to get to watch. Or when, when a marriage is breaking up and the gospel intervenes and a husband and wife are reconciled to each other because of Jesus Christ, there's nothing like it. And there are sorrows and heartbreaks in ministry that I can't even describe to you. The sleepless nights and and the moments of utter heartbreak when somebody wanders away from the faith, there's nothing like it. When two people refuse to, to repent and bring Christ into their marriage and be reconciled, sorrow wise, there is nothing like it. When someone who has professed to be a Christian for many years and then says or does something grievous, something contrary to the scriptures that ruins their reputation and brings reproach on the name of Christ, there's almost no heartbreak like that in this world. With the joys and the heartaches of ministry, we come to this last exhortation. Pray for your leaders. Verse 18, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. The writer humbly asks for prayer. He knows that the best of overseers is not self-sufficient, is not above the need of prayer, and so he's pleading with his flock, pray for us. The best way you can be of service to us is to pray. And you must pray for us because as those who lead the church and proclaim his word, we live so much of life under public scrutiny and the evil one loves when leaders of Christ's church fall. So that in a sense, as he watches it happen, he can look to God and say, those are your special people? There's nothing special about them. Sometimes ministries end because of awful scandal. The kind the news loves to to harp upon. Most of the time, that's not why pastors and elders walk away. Most of the time, ministry ends uh, with a death by a thousand paper cuts. It's exhausting. And so you must pray. We plead with you. Uh, On behalf of the elders, I plead with you, just as verse 18 says, pray for us. I'll be the first to confess that as leaders of this church, we're not perfect. I'm far from it, and I hope you'll pray for us because one day we will give account for how we shepherded the flock. Pray for us. So what do we do? Give heed to these words. Remember your leaders. Consider the outcome of their lives. Obey and submit to them that they may be able one day to give testimony to God that not only did they shepherd you, but that it was a joy to shepherd you. Follow their taillights. 
and to the leaders of this church, to the elders. Shepherd the flock well, knowing that you will give account for them to the great shepherd of the sheep. How do we apply this text? I'm going to camp right there on that fourth point. Pray for us. Pray for your pastors that we would love Jesus more than we love ministry. That we would love our wives as Christ loved the church and that we would disciple our families first. Uh, that's what First, Tim- uh, First Timothy 3 said. If he can't manage his own household, how can he shepherd the, the flock? So pray that we would love our wives and shepherd our families. Pray that we would preach the word in season and out of season, reproving, rebuking, exhorting with complete patience and teaching. Pray for us as we administer the sacraments. Pray for us that we would resist temptations to pride and we would depend wholly upon the grace of Christ through prayer. Pray for for the, the elders, the ruling elders of this church, that they would continue to display and live out those qualifications, ever growing more and more in those qualifications. 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1 that they would shepherd the flock with wisdom. As Peter says, 1 Peter 5, 2, shepherd the flock that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering those in your charge, but being an example to the flock. Pray for them as each of them have large shepherding groups. They seek to know the members of their shepherding groups and to invest in their lives and to walk alongside of them in both joy and sorrow. Pray for your elders. Pray for your deacons. Likewise, like the elders, pray for your deacons that they would live out those biblical qualifications of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. Pray that they would have compassionate and merciful hearts towards those that they help and serve. Pray that they would have wisdom in the decisions they make, that they would be full of the Holy Spirit, that they would reach out to and serve widows and orphans and others in distress. If you would, pray for the families of church leaders. They bear an extra burden in a lot of ways. Their dynamic of relationship with the church can oftentimes be unique. You think of the children of of elders and the children of ministers. They, in times, live in the fishbowl where everybody sees their life. Pray for them that God would work mightily in their hearts. Pray for our wives that we would love them more than we love the church. Pray that our families would be encouraged and supported and that for the members of our family, as for the members of, of, every, uh, of every member of this church, that we would reflect the gospel to those around us. Wouldn't you pray towards that end? Let's go to God in prayer. Lord, these, these things that you have set before us are weighty tasks, and we confess that there is much within us that bristles, Even as one whom you've called to shepherd the flock, I at times bristle. I at times feel like Moses. I stumble over my words. How can I speak to your people? We look for excuses not to have to shepherd the flock. For the flock, at times, it can be hard to follow and obey and submit to the leaders At times, Lord, we would rather just complain and grumble. And our grumbling is evidence of our prayerlessness. 
Lord, help us to be a church where the leadership has walked so closely with Jesus that it would be the congregation's joy and privilege to imitate them as they imitate Christ. We ask all this in the matchless name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.